Hey, really good friends. This episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions and take care of yourself. Hello. And welcome to Historically Really Good Friends, a queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Rachel Craig. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That's good. I like, I like that intro. Thanks. Yeah, it's all about you today. No, I'm Jared Femlo. Hello. How are Hello, you? Hello, Jared Femlo. Hello, I Rachel am, Craig. I am very good. I'm glad to be seeing you for the second time this week. But um, this time, unfortunately, it's not in person like it was only a few days ago. That's true. Um, so that is disappointing, but I will still take it. Um, two in-person visits in one year so far. So far. Our first in-person visit of the year, we decided to do the podcast. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, how symbolic. And then our second in-person visit has been just about 20 episodes into the podcast. Yeah. I thought you were going to say it also had something to do with the podcast, like significantly. And I was like, we did nothing for the podcast while we saw each other. <laughs> we didn't. We were deciding before we saw each other if we were going to like make it an in-person podcast mm-hmm. recording. And we were like, mm-hmm. no, that's, it's not worth it. No, because, you, okay, so you and I both traveled to Boston for a friend's engagement and we did a lot of drinking. There was a lot of like catching up with families and friends. And it, it just uh, filming, recording a podcast was not in our stars for this weekend. It wasn't. So I'm sorry. To, actually, I'm not really sorry to our listeners because they're still getting an episode. We still right. fit it in for you. Don't you worry. We did rearrange our schedules for you. I'm just, it's all fine. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. So Start I shaming don't... our listeners. Start blaming them. <laughs> how dare you be fan? I don't even want to say fans. How it feels dare you like... listen? How, yeah. How dare you want to participate in our quirky, fun, little, stupid thing. That we make that we for you to specifically listen to. Right. How dare you listen how to it? How could you? <laughs> yeah, I am out of LA. I'm I'm in a new environment. Nice. My microphone Ooh. is sitting inside of a, a mug right now because I did not bring my Very stand. Nice. We're making all sorts of things work. If you hear cars in the background... I am so sorry if you hear birds in the background. Just think of it as ASMR. It's ambient yeah. white noise. Do not talk about it. It's asthma and it's a reminder. You know what? The birds, the birds, the cars in the back, the environmental noises, mm-hmm. folks, they're your reminder that you're alive today. So take them all in. It's a good, it's a good little message. We are not recording this from a void. I promise. That would be wild if we were. What do you, how would that even work? I don't know. Maybe it would be nice though. Right? Maybe just like a just a small taste. Like, just every once a week we get a little taste of the uh, void. A podcast void. It's just like uh, a nice dark room where you just get to record a podcast. Oh, doesn't that sound lovely? Well, it okay, no? because okay. I can't enjoy anything. It did sound lovely for a moment, but then I was immediately reminded of that video 
of like the quietest room on earth have you seen that video it's padded yeah and you can like hear your like your own i don't even know like i feel like i should offer some kind of trigger warning like i don't even know what it would be but it's like you can hear your own like blood moving like your heart beating because it's so it's so quiet it ends up like actually like emphasizing the sounds that like because you are making the most noise in the room and it's just like dark and like whatever video i watched this guy so like tried to see how long he could spend in the room and it was just like completely dark and silent but like more than silent and it just gives me scary vibes so when you said that that's what i thought of because i can't just be at peace okay so you did ruin it so i i did i'm really sorry i no longer want to go to the podcast void I would love to avoid it at all costs. Right. You would like to avoid the void, which is great, though. That's why we have hear birds in the background. Mm-hmm. So really, it's the, full circle. It's a great thing. The birds and the bees and the cars and the trees are a good thing. There you go. That's a song, I think. Like I just, are, you, are you saying like I made up a song or are you saying that's already a song that exists? No, it, it is a song that exists. Wow, that just came out of my brain. I don't remember the lyrics, but it's an old song. Eddie and his family listen to it. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, he's going to be mad at me that I don't remember. I really don't because it's like a weird, sorry. It's like kind of a weird song, I feel like. It's like an old folky song, but those are the lyrics minus the um, cars part. But the rest of them, exactly the same. Great. Well, you know what? Yeah. Reinventing the wheel. So yeah, some, somebody's got to do it. What we love to do here. Somebody's got to do it. Yeah. Let's get a new wheel already. Right. We need Shouldn't one. Shouldn't we? Yeah. It's, it's about time. Yeah. I think we have to. Oh, speaking of of which, haha, segue. It's so good. Have you ever had to change your own tire or really do any kind of independent of repair of, a, of your vehicle? No. I try to avoid doing things to my car at all costs. Like I don't, I don't even like putting gas in it. So if, if I can avoid touching my car, I will. Why? That's fair. Um, because this morning on my way to work, mm-hmm. I got a flat tire <gasps> and I was like, oh, like literally I don't even know what to do. Yeah, like do I, in that situation? I don't even know what the next step is. It, it was like totally decimated too. So I had like, I couldn't, it wasn't like a slow, slow like it was just Uh totally it like popped yeah 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 so happened i would rather not say um it was it was it was like will will you get in trouble if you admit it no i won't get in trouble it's just (laughs) one of the many embarrassing things that are like kind of self-inflicted not really well now you have to share well i can i can say the story so where i live or, or like on my way to work it's like very hilly I know how much you miss the North Jersey streets. I so dream it's, about it's them. Very hilly, like really steep hills. So this one road, the speed limit's like twenty miles an hour because you're going uphill. Mm-hmm. It's really windy, and then there's like these weird medians in between the lanes, and then like really short, like curbs on the side. So I'm driving up one of the hills and going around a curve, mm-hmm. and. The car behind me is like being really impatient as people often are in the mornings. Especially in New Jersey. Yeah. So I was like trying to pick up the pace a little bit. I was trying to be kind and I was like, okay, I don't know why you're in a rush. You're pissing me off, but I'll speed up a little bit. No, Mm. should not have done that. And Mm -hmm. so I just like, in order to kind of continue going along the curve of the road and staying in between these dumb medians that are, that are there, 
to mm-hmm. assumingly prevent stupid people driving. I, sure. I got a little too close to the curb and oh. popped my tire. Mm-hmm. You know what? It happens to the best of us. Well, you, what's you funny... You alone are the best of us. <laughs> what's funny is the the person who came to change my tire for me, which leads into my story about how I was like, I don't even know what to do. But mm-hmm. the person who came to change my tire for me was very nice about it. So maybe he was lying, maybe he wasn't. But he was like, yeah, literally so many times we get calls about this specific road and people popping their tires on those curbs because they're too short. Like they're they're small and weak. Like they're just weird. Mm-hmm. I'm over justifying, but it mm-hmm. made me feel you better. Are. So it does happen to the best of us. Okay. Well, you know what? You're not the only one then. At least yeah. you're not the only one, you know? Exactly. Just slightly adds to the embarrassment that then I don't know how to change my own tire. I was like, so Is that something spo- okay. we're supposed to know? I don't know. I feel like I'd like to learn. Maybe it's like the fifth grade, like, wannabe feminist in me that's like, you just have to learn it just to know mm-hmm. it. You know, the cool girl that can change a tire when it comes up for some reason. I don't know. Mm, I don't relate to that at all. Yeah. You know what? What a world you must. That's 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 so nice. That's so nice mm-hmm. for you. I'm happy mm-hmm. for you. Thank you. So I'll keep you updated if by yeah. the next recording, maybe I will have learned how to change a tire for some reason. Okay. I can't wait. I'm so excited to hear about it. Okay. Thank you. I'll, I'll let you know. Thanks. That was, uh, that was great. That was fun. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I love, love having these convos with you. They're so fun. Really brighten up my day and don't make me feel embarrassed at all. (laughs) With that little boost of confidence, I feel like I need to take this. We just need to go into it. Mm -hmm. We'll just dive in. Okay. So the, the complicated thing. Is that... um, Should we talk about it? Should we make a decision, which is something that both of us are very bad at doing? We are very bad at doing. Um, So last week, as hopefully all of our continued listeners know, we switched up our order, which is not that consequential, really does not make that much of a difference, except now we're stuck because we don't know who should go first. Right. Rachel, do you go first for the third time in a week, or do we just from here on out, change the order and I'll go first. And then next week you go first and then we go that way. I feel like we do it like reverse Uno style where this time you go first and we just kind of change the order now only because people may be sick of hearing me talk first. And that's fair. I don't think that would ever happen, but I will gladly We'll do reverse Uno. Okay, I'll gladly reverse Uno. Excellent. So last week I talked about lesbia harford and Mm -hmm. i chose lesbia based on you talking about sappho this week i decided no more i'm gonna be my own person i'm gonna choose someone that has nothing to do with who you're doing maybe probably not because we always find some weird connection but this week i really wanted to continue the theme of pride month and figures and those who were really essential to kind of the queer or gay liberation movement in the united states And so this week, I'm going to be talking to you about the guardian of lesbians in the village, Stormy Delavier. Oh, I'm so excited. This seems like such a fascinating topic. I shied away from it a little bit because I needed to give myself a break on pronunciations and I was nervous I was going to get that one wrong. That's the (laughs) thing. So there are so many people that pronounce it differently, but there are a few sources that have Stormy pronouncing her own name. 
and okay. she pronounces it Stormy de la Vier. It's not okay. Storm de la Vier. It's not Stormy de la Vier. It's Stormy de la Vier. And okay. So my sources this week are an article called Drag Herstory, A Drag King's Journey from Cabaret Legend to Iconic Activist by Alyssa Goodman. It Wasn't No Damn Riot, Celebrating Stonewall Uprising Activist Stormy DeLavier by Jody Ann Beery. A Brief History of Stormy DeLavier, Stonewall Suiting Icon by Rachel Tashian for GQ. Stormy's Biography from the U.S. National Park Services. Stormy's Biography from Past.com by Harley Osgood. Stormy DeLavier's Obituary from the New York Times, which I don't want to read the title of because it kind of gives it away but that's by william yardley and then stormy's wikipedia page excellent you've got quite the lineup of sources today i have quite the lineup of sources because as you'll kind of find out shortly stormy was a pretty private person she didn't really go around talking much in detail about specific facts from a lot of periods of her life so what i'm about to tell you is sourced from a lot of different sources in order to create kind of a story about who she was. Got it. You're giving us the full picture today, and I appreciate that. As much of a picture as I can paint. I love it. So Stormy Delavier's birth is recognized as December 24th, 1920. Stormy is born to a Black mother who is a domestic worker to a wealthy white homeowner, Stormy's father. She's Sorry, can I interrupt already? Right off the bat, let's do it. Right off the bat, because um, you you chose a specific word, and I just want to um, mm-hmm. clarify. So mm-hmm. you you said her birthday is recognized mm-hmm. on a specific day. Is there controversy mm-hmm. about her birth? Is it like of significant? Is it like a, a couple months, a couple days, mm-hmm. or is it like are we talking years? Okay, so I love your curiosity. Thank I am you. obsessed with it. Did However, I read too much into it? No, I'm about to, I'm like just okay. about to say. Too, too soon. Okay, it's okay. okay. <laughs> no, but it's okay. So I love that you're on the right track. And I'm glad that you did pick up on that. Okay. So she's born in New Orleans, Louisiana. And according to Stormy, is never given a birth certificate. Okay. Interracial couples at the time are against the law, as is the birth of a child by an interracial couple. So she's never entirely sure of when she's born, but celebrates okay. her birth annually on Christmas Eve. Okay, excellent. Makes a ton of sense in a very sad way, but I understand. Okay. Right. Stormy grows up in the South, and during her childhood, she's bullied frequently, being both verbally and physically attacked for being biracial. On several accounts, Stormy is left with injuries from these attacks, with one leaving her in a leg brace and another resulting in a scar from being left hanging on a fence. In an interview later in life, Stormy would note that she was being beaten up by white kids for being black and not white enough, and being beat up by black kids for being white and not black enough. So she would say something like, I had a black mother, but I had a white face. Mm -hmm. And so there's just that, you know, there's, it's an issue that a lot of biracial people experience feeling like they don't belong in both races that they they do belong to. Right, right. They're not like fully really immersed or allowed to be in either kind of culture or, or experience. Exactly. One account states that eventually her father and mother marry and the family moves to California where interracial couples can marry, but other accounts state that her father eventually sends her away to private school for her own safety and that her grandfather helps raise her. Not much else is documented about Stormy's childhood years, though. 
except for the fact that when she reaches her teenage years, so in the mid to late 1930s, she spends some time in the Ringling Bros Circus riding jumping horses side saddle. So completely coming out of left field, we get this girl who's being bullied and then all of a sudden she's riding horses for the Ringling Bro Circus. And from what I can find, jumping horses just means that she's performing like show type jumping, which Mm -hmm. is leading horses over hurdles and obstacles. And that's all about the horse's athleticism, agility, and tractability while simultaneously testing a rider's precision, accuracy, and responsiveness. Yeah, I feel like I don't know that much about riding horses side saddle except from what i know from the princess diaries too rachel jean (laughs) i if do you want to tell the story do you want do you want to go ahead and tell the story from the movie no just listen okay so okay Okay, sorry i was just gonna say it seemed challenging but go ahead so what i was gonna say if you would let me speak (laughs) rachel Sorry. Side saddle, though, is when the rider doesn't straddle the horse with a leg on each side of the horse, but rather sits with both legs on one side, so barely has the ability to hold on to the horse with their legs, and it's wildly impressive, I noted. And then I said, think of that one scene in Princess Diaries <laughs> 2 where Anne Hathaway has to use the wooden leg. Such <laughs> a good movie. I'm so glad Truly. we both made that connection. Absolutely. It's only natural. Getting back into Stormy. However, Stormy is injured in a fall and stops riding horses altogether. And so kind of, I don't know if this is, you know, you can tell by now, but it's like bits and pieces. I don't know when she'd gotten an injury. I don't know really at what age. I don't know how long she was in the circus for. So at some point she gets injured from riding horses and just stops. And then around the age of 18, Stormy realizes that she is and begins to identify as a lesbian. And fearing for her safety as a biracial lesbian in the South, like literally being afraid of being murdered, Mm -hmm. Stormy makes the decision to move to the Windy City, Chicago. Here in Chicago, Stormy would tell her friends, is where she becomes a bodyguard for mobsters. And while I'm not sure how true this is, she definitely had a very rough childhood and knows how to throw a punch and survive a fight. So I wouldn't really be surprised at all if it was. So interesting. Just like a fun little fact about her. Don't know where it came from, but it's like, that's the one piece of connective tissue between after post surface and going into the rest of her life. I, I feel like that's such, I, I just want it to be true and also relevant. We were watching a show the other day where I, I was like getting so upset at the, at the TV because essentially they, the took place in around the 1920s and Mm -hmm. it was that there was a like a female spy and no one like she fucked up multiple times she was really bad at her job okay and no one thought that she was a spy just because she was a woman so they were just like oh that mess up can be explained away by this or by this and like just because she was a it was just sexism that they didn't assume so i feel like maybe that's a a similar situation yeah literally of like Maybe she could have been a bodyguard just because it was unassuming right. that she would be able to like be defensive. Right. And it's difficult because there's no biography written about Stormy. So what I'm getting right. is just like pieces from like bits and pieces from here and there. And right. a lot of it is like Stormy would tell her friends or they said about <laughs> right. Stormy. So it all right. seems like a myth, even though she was like a very real person, like quite recently. 
And right. you'll see later on why some of these things could kind of validate this fact, but it just seems so out of left field. Like, it's just <laughs> yeah. so wild. And she is at this time, like quite small. Like she is right. very tiny. So it's just, it's surprising. Let's believe it. Let's say she's right. a bodyguard for monsters. Okay. <laughs> I love that. In the early 1940s, now in Chicago, she begins performing as a singer named Stormy Dale. Her smooth baritone voice gains her some success, and her career as a performer begins to take off. She dresses as a woman and sings with jazz and swing groups, sometimes even taking her act overseas and performing in Europe. It's also noted in some sources that Stormy tests the waters in Chicago as dressing as a man and performing, you know, presenting as a straight man, which is something common for butch lesbians around this time to do. But she mainly performs and presents as a woman on stage. And having some success as a singer, Stormy takes to the road, traveling with her bands, running in similar circles to Nina Simone, Billie Holiday, and other great musicians of the time. Uh-huh. But then in 1946, while she's on the road, Stormy goes to Miami and visits her friends Danny Brown and Doc Brenner of the venue Danny's Jewel Box. She learns that they're creating a new review show consisting of 25 drag queens and needs help getting it on its feet. After discussions, it's decided that Stormy will be the MC of the show, but under her one condition of being allowed to host the show as a drag king. Now, many of us are familiar with what a drag queen is, so it's similar, but a drag king is someone that's typically born female impersonating a male character. I love that. And I feel like I don't really know anything about drag kings. You know, RuPaul's Mm -hmm. Drag Race has become such a big mainstream you know, facet of what drag queens are, but drag kings just don't get the same attention. So when I learned this about Stormy, I was like, oh my God, finally, like a drag king, someone to like have an example of. Yeah, someone that's really notable for their work as a drag king. Because yeah, same. I didn't really know of any, like off the top of my head, I can name quite a few drag queens. I probably can't name any kings. I know I'm in the same boat. And in later interviews, Stormy would recall people telling her that she couldn't do the show in drag as it would ruin her reputation that she's built up as a singer. But Stormy doesn't care. Danny Brown and Doc Brenner eventually agree to let her perform as a male impersonator, and Stormy joins the show with the intention of staying only six months. She'll end up staying 14 years. Whoa. So the review show is created with the intention to tour the country's black theater circuit as the Jewel Box Review, and is North America's first integrated drag review showcasing both black and white performers. Wow. The Jewel Box Review, billed as a quote-unquote unusual variety show, regularly plays the Apollo Theater in Harlem, as well as to mixed race audiences, something incredibly rare because of segregation laws. Mm Mm-hmm. The show's slogan becomes 25 men and one girl, and audience members spend the entire performance trying to guess who of the performers is the real woman. (sighs) And at the end of the show, similarly to Barbette, Stormy, dressed in a fine tailored suit and mustache, reveals herself to be a woman during a musical number called A Surprise with a Song. In a documentary about her life and her time with the review, Stormy says, quote, It was very easy. All I had to do was just be me and let people use their imaginations. It never changed me. I was still a woman. She continues, Men's jackets were loose, but the pants were skin tight. 
And if I ever took off my jacket on stage, the dirt was out. But the strange thing was, I never moved any different than I had when I was wearing women's clothes. The audience only saw what they wanted to see and they believed what they wanted to believe. End quote. Wow, I think that's a really impactful quote. Like hearing how positive she felt about performing in this way, but also that I think it's very telling for then and now about how, you know, people on the outs are just like strangers, really, how we pers- like what we use to perceive others. 1000%. I totally agree with that. So Stormy stays with the Jewel Box Review until 1955, and then by the 1960s, Stormy is mainly based out of New York City, still singing in clubs and performing at bars. The city is experiencing a peak period of homophobic legislation and relentless campaigns attacking queer people and venues. One of these laws requires every person to wear at least three pieces of clothing that matches the gender they're assigned to at birth. So men would be allowed to wear trousers and a woman wouldn't be allowed to. What are the three gender-specific items of clothing? Like you have to wear three at all times, you said? Like what are mm -hmm. the three? So it's like for women, you would have to wear like a skirt, heels, and like a blouse or something. Oh, heels. Okay. Okay. For men, you would have to wear like trousers, a button-down shirt, and a tie, or like a jacket, or like dress shoes. So it's like whatever they saw typically, stereotypically as male or female clothing, that's what they had to wear. Okay, I guess, yeah, like the shoes through me. I was like, everybody's got to wear like socks. Like, what are we talking about here? Like, I I was trying to think of outfits. That's so wild. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... Initially, Stormy attempts to obey this law by wearing women's clothing on the streets and only wearing her more masculine attire on stage as part of her drag persona, but this doesn't even work. Because Stormy has a pretty androgynous look, so she's arrested twice while wearing women's clothing because the cops believe that she's a drag queen. Okay, yeah, that's what I was going to say. This doesn't really seem like an enforceable policy unless you're going to violate just violate people in order to at some to still assume because even with certain features that you may be looking for that is not a good indicator of anything which they will Woo! okay love it i hate that the hate when like my really bad guesses are right (laughs) are so accurate so after this stormy gives up trying to follow this law Stormy often takes her more masculine style, you know, zoot suits, fedoras, and ties to her everyday life, Mm -hmm. inspiring the fashion for a whole generation of butch lesbians. She's occasionally detained for wearing men's clothing too, so she can't win either way. And so it's like, if she can't win, she might as well just be like dressing how she wants to. Right, how she wants. She's gonna get detained anyway. Because if it varies day to day what people are doing, then she's like, fuck it, whatever. Right. And during one arrest, a police officer actually criticizes her bow tying skills. And in response, in like a very stormy response, she asks for a tutorial and the police officer in the middle of detaining her shows her. And from that (laughs) moment on, Stormy boasts her perfect bow tying abilities, able to do it without a mirror. (laughs) That's so funny. Oh, priorities. (laughs) Right, right. So... As time goes on, 
Police raids become more habitual due to the work of then-Mayor Robert F. Wagner Jr. with the goal of the law enforcement really trying to crack down and catch as many people as they can. City statute authorizes police officers to raid bars and force patrons to show identification, often subjecting those they believe to be quote-unquote cross-dressing to body searches under the threat of arrest. And a lot of these bars are often run by members of the mafia, so they're under close watch by the police anyway, so the police would really use any excuse they were able to to justify these raids. On the night of June 27, 1969, the night of the now-titled Stonewall Riots, patrons of the bar are surprised with a police raid. All of them are completely fed up and reaching a point where they just can't take it anymore. One of these patrons is none other than Stormy Delavier, dressed in her finest masculine attire, putting her in violation of the three-piece clothing law. Now, the events of this night at the Stonewall Inn happen incredibly quickly, and there's a lot going on everywhere. We'll never 100% be able to say for certain what happened in what order and who did what, but various accounts attribute the spark that started the resistance against police as the following. A woman possibly Stormy, is roughly being escorted from the door of the bar to a waiting police wagon. She escapes the grasp of the police officers multiple times and is brought through the crowd multiple times. A scuffle breaks out with the woman fighting with at least four police officers shouting and swearing for at least 10 minutes. When the woman announces her handcuffs are too tight, she's hit on the head by an officer with their baton. Bleeding from her head, the woman, who multiple sources have claimed is Stormy, including herself, looks to the rage-filled but helpless crowd shouting, why don't you guys do something? An officer picks up the woman and throws her into the back of the wagon, and then the crowd then becomes a mob and goes berserk. It was at that moment that everything becomes explosive. So, while no one knows which butch lesbian threw the first punch at Stonewall or what events concretely occurred, many claim that it was Stormy Delavier. And while there's a chance that it wasn't her, all accounts agree that Stormy was one of the butch lesbians fighting back against police that night. Later, Stormy would be very clear that what happened at Stonewall was not a riot, which has become a misleading description of the night. Quote, It was a rebellion. It was an uprising. It was a civil rights disobedience. It wasn't no damn riot, she would say. But after that night, Stormy's involvement in the queer liberation movement was far from over. Two weeks after the rebellion, Stormy is part of the official formation of the Stonewall Veterans Association on July 11, 1969. She's active in the organization, holding the offices of Chief of Security and Ambassador. And in 1998 to 2000, she would even serve as the Vice President. Wow, she makes another appearance as a security guard. Oh, just you wait. (laughs) So, virtually nothing is known about this in terms of how and where, estimated somewhere around the 1940s during her time in Chicago, but Stormy meets a dancer named Diana, and the two fall madly in love. This is the only romantic relationship that is really known about Stormy. Shortly after Stonewall, however, Stormy's long-term partner of 25 years, Diana, passes away, which is the catalyst for Stormy to kind of leave entertainment and performing almost entirely. She was my life, Stormy says, and carries around a photo of Diana with her wherever she goes. It was rare that Stormy would not have Diana on her at all times. Now, instead of entertainment, 
She becomes a bodyguard for wealthy families during the day and a bouncer for various lesbian bars in the West Village at night. Although she doesn't like the term bouncer and instead prefers, quote, babysitter of my people, all the boys and girls. So it's a little bit more wordy. It's a little longer, but I think it definitely has kind of like the same connotation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sweeter. It's cuter. And it makes you feel like I personally get for some reason of a legal drinking age, still get nervous every time I have to go up to a bouncer. So if if they were instead called a babysitter of my people, right? That was it? Yeah. Then yeah, yeah I'd be like, hell yeah, let's go see the friggin' babysitter. Let's go see the babysitter. <laughs> I, got, I got a cool babysitter. Absolutely. She lets me drink. Yeah. <laughs> At night as well, when not guarding the entrances to lesbian bars, Stormy works as a volunteer street patrol worker. Handgun strapped to her hip, she appoints herself the quote-unquote guardian of lesbians in the village. In her obituary in the New York Times, it says, quote, tall, androgynous, and armed. She held a state gun permit. Miss Delavier roamed Lower 7th and 8th Avenues and points between into her 80s, patrolling the sidewalks and checking in at lesbian bars. She was on the lookout for what she called ugliness, any form of intolerance, bullying, or abuse of her quote-unquote baby girls. She literally walked the streets of downtown Manhattan like a gay superhero. She was not to be messed with by any stretch of the imagination, end quote. Which is like, wow, what an obituary. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yeah. She was... I always say badass, but literally Stormy DeLavier was like the badass of the time. Yeah, like I feel like superhero sums it up well. Like where's the the CW vigilante show about Stormy? Like CW, that's what I want. Let's talk. I want to sell the script. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, really. Stormy continues her work as a security guard slash bouncer at various lesbian bars well through the 80s and 1990s and into the mid-2000s when she was 85 years old. Oh my gosh. Up until a few years before her death, Stormy was a fixture in annual pride parades and would sing at charity events and fundraisers around New York, specifically for the victims of violence and domestic abuse. When asked why she did this, she replied, quote, Somebody has to care. If people didn't care about me when I was growing up, with my mother being Black, raised in the South, I wouldn't be here. End quote. She also stated in a short 2001 documentary called A Stormy Life that, quote, I'm a human being that survived. I help people survive. During the last few years of her life, Stormy struggles in a fight against dementia. Between 2010 and 2014, she lives in a nursing home in New York, although it doesn't seem like she's aware that she's in a nursing home. On the other hand, her memories of her childhood and Stonewall remain strong. And on May 24th, 2014, in Brooklyn, Stormy passes away in her sleep. And while no immediate family members are alive at the time of her death, her passing certainly doesn't go unnoticed. She is fondly remembered and revered by the queer community who honor her for her fearlessness and bravery. And that is Stormy DeLavier, the guardian of lesbians in the village and potentially the first person to throw a punch at the Stonewall Inn. Wow, thank you. I am so, so glad that you were able to sort of tackle this topic because there was a lot and I know you had to pull from a bunch of different sources, but... 
I can't believe this wasn't someone that I had more knowledge of. The amazing, like, almost, like, legendary, mythical things that she was doing. Like, Like, it's almost like we don't know what was necessarily true but i just want it all to be true because it was so like fantastic right it's like i'm very surprised especially being kids that grew up in new jersey like we were right next to new york city she died like while we were in high school like how this is not someone that we heard about more often especially because she was such like a protector of queer people in new york city Mm-hmm. it just baffles me like why is she why is she why don't we know so much about her why didn't you know someone try to like take note or like take account of her life right. like, why, what happened how did this fall through the cracks and why is she not more revered yeah and maybe we just weren't looking in the right places but totally you know totally. this is a story and we've talked about this before and it, you know like things don't have to be like groundbreaking to have them be like made into films or tv or Mm -hmm. movies but like Mm -hmm. or just documented in any way but also at the same time so many of the things we've talked about on the show are way better and more interesting Mm -hmm. stories than like so many of the the media that exists and like this is one of those like even for it like in in an exploitative way of like creating Mm -hmm. some kind of consumer product out of this i'm surprised no one has even done that like this is a fantastic story that should be developed more and Mm -hmm. i'm so glad that it seems she is remembered fondly and and many people hold her the hold a piece of her still but it's just you know I think her energy, even from the story, like put a smile on my face so many times. And I just wish maybe that was spread more like when she was here. Right. She meant a lot to a lot of people. She was just like that figure that, like you're saying, that would like make people smile. Like she just was good. You know what I mean? Like she had so many bad things happen to her and she went through so many things especially in her childhood that Mm -hmm. she just turned it around she became so when she was 15 I think it was her father said to her something along the lines of because this was when she was being bullied so it's like her father said something like you can't always run away from your problems or you can't run away you can't like if you're gonna run away you're always going to be running away if you keep running away you're always going to be running away Mm -hmm. and so that day she was like I'm no longer going to run away from anything. And so right. that is really from that like moment. And I'm sure it was, it was a lot more muddied and, and complicated of just being like, I'm being bullied. And then to be right. like, I'm not to take it, <laughs> you know? So like, I'm sure there was a lot in between that change, but she definitely took those words to heart and became a protector of a lot of people and became mm-hmm. an advocate for a lot of people. Like she yeah. was the person that looked out for you she's like the person in the neighborhood that everyone knew everyone loved and she lived a very long happy life and like the people that got to know her while she was alive are very very lucky people Mm -hmm. definitely And And i wish more could get to know her yeah me too and i think one really great takeaway from this though is that she demonstrated and i think especially relevant during this month but she demonstrated that you can be part of like a collective movement. You can, you know, 
strength and numbers and and all of that and kind of getting work done in that way but mm-hmm. also that like advocacy does not always also have to be in a group like massive scale like when right. she was 85 years old she was just walking around monitoring to make sure that those in her community felt safe and protected by someone. And like, that was her as an individual. And it seems like she did that for a lot of her life. Right. And Mm -hmm. so it really does demonstrate. And that's something that I would love to kind of take with me and hold Mm -hmm. that as like her story and the piece of her of like, not only did it seem like she was that person that kind of spread that really just like good positive energy, but also that like, she was just like a one person operation and she was Mm -hmm. really making people feel safe without needing or, or worrying about, okay, well, there's not enough people in this movement. She was like, well, fuck them. I'm here doing this now. Right. Action needs to be taken and I'm going to take that first step. Right. Right. And so like, that's definitely something I think worth considering Mm -hmm. in these times of like, what, what can can I I offer just me Mm -hmm. as a person? Like what would make me feel fulfilled? And what is, what is like that small way that I can potentially do something for someone Mm -hmm. else? And if we all live a little bit like Stormy Flavier, we can do a lot. There you go. What a beautiful ending. Boom. Thank you, Jared, for that. Honestly, maybe a little gross display of positivity, but um, I appreciate it. (laughs) I appreciate it. Kind of continuing on the same lines, and don't worry, we did accidentally have some similarities in our stories again. Of course. (laughs) As always, I'm going to be talking to you today about Simon and Coley. Mm. Now, this was a person I had never even heard the name before. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's because as we've talked about, um, he's not American and, mm-hmm. you know, we probably don't even know a lot of American folks, let alone people from other countries. So uh, this may be totally new to you too. Yes? No? I, I know the name. I know nothing behind the name. Okay. Amazing. Well, so I'll take you on a journey. The sources that I use for today's journey include South African History Online's page dedicated to Simon and Coley, The Legacy Project on Simon and Coley, Making Queer History, yet again using them as a source, thank you you so much, and their online page for Simon and Coley, Simon and Coley Queer South African Freedom Fighter, article by Maria Helena for The Gay Voice, and then finally... Till the Time of Trial, The Prison Letters of Simon and Coley. You have a lot of great sources too, sounds like. I do. This was, I was finding, I guess, similarly to how you were describing that in a lot of these stories, there are some, like sometimes like the author will include a story and you're like, I, mm-hmm. I that's a, that, that was out of left field. Right. Like who, and where so, did you get that? Right. And so I like try to find at least one or two other articles that happen to mention that same story. Just otherwise, I'm like, did you just Mm. like fully make that up? (laughs) Because like no one else is verifying that. And so granted, a lot of things may have been lost or some Mm -hmm. interviews may have been exclusive and all those things. So similarly, that's why Mm -hmm. 
I also just want to give like a brief content warning up front and I'll also tell you before we get into it, there's like a very brief mention of suicidality. So Mm -hmm. just kind of wanted to throw that up front. All right. So Simon and Coley was born in November 1957 in a segregated town of South Africa. So from 1948, nearly 10 years before Simon's birth, through 1994, so a lot of of time, South Africa was operating under an apartheid system, which is a structural and institutional segregation of Black South Africans and white South Africans. So at this time, white people living in South Africa were known just as Europeans, and Black people living in South Africa were known as African. 1994, as in like 27 years ago, 28 years ago? Yeah. Apartheid did not end that long ago. Um, Mm, Okay, South Africa, I'd like to talk. See me in my office. And so it's, it's kind of like if you're American and understand, you know, like how if you haven't heard that much about apartheid and we talk about like specifics a little bit later, but like taking what we understand about segregation and just kind of like escalating it even more where it was like Mm -hmm. very intrinsically related to like all government systems. Mm -hmm. So very similar. And yes, lasted until 1994. So this was an institutional division that prioritized and supported white South Africans or quote unquote Europeans over black South Africans with many unlawful arrests of black South Africans made little to no housing or economic security for Black individuals and families, forced relocation of many families to more impoverished, quote, homeland areas. So it was like essentially like very crowded areas that people were forced into and very specifically pass laws, which mandated South Africans over age 16 to carry documentation similar to kind of a passport, but it was everywhere they went, which was to record extensive information regarding where, when, who, why they were gathering and existing just like in certain places. So weird surveillance, like intense surveillance at all times. Very much. Yes, very much. And it was used as a means of control, like continuing, Mm -hmm. making sure like they were Mm -hmm. enforcing the segregation and also labor enforcement because many Black South Africans were forced out of urban areas where they previously were, but then had to travel into work. So it was Mm -hmm. that means of control to like verify where people were going, but also to make sure that like their labor was still being delivered to the places that they wanted it to be. And so Mm -hmm. this is this really, really awful system. And this is Mm -hmm. what Simon was born into. So during this time, his family kind of had to spend a lot of his adolescence like navigating where they could go, where they could live, like how to survive. And and he witnessed all of this at a really young age. So having had that experience, it really shaped his future plans, like what he wanted to do. And unfortunately, exposed him to like a very intense discrimination mm-hmm. that colors your entire worldview and it was from you know people within that were part of his country like other south africans were perpetuating this discrimination and like as well as the government Mm -hmm. so 
he was watching his parents hide from police when they were gathering in quote illegal places so if there was just like too many people in one place they had to like hide so that they wouldn't be arrested then similarly to stormy well potentially similarly he went to live with his grandparents where it was safer Mm. because they were working on a farm but they were doing intense labor on this farm as like essentially indentured servants to Mm -hmm. the white person who had owned the farm right so they were like granted tenancy they were able to live there as long as Mm -hmm. they did this like very intense labor Mm -hmm. and so after witnessing those things simon was like okay i think the only way out of this system is to get some kind of formal education so he was like trying to prevent some of the same experiences from happening so he would travel to school as much as he could oftentimes having to travel far distances and then as he got older and was like more capable of working the person who owned the farm essentially was forcing him and forcing his grandparents to force him to like quit school and just begin working on the farm Mm -hmm. but he refused because he knew at that point, he was like, if I can continue getting an ed- education, like that's my best bet. Mm-hmm. So he ran away. He's like in his mid to late teens, which is okay. something we've seen, I think, pretty often from yeah. some of our subjects so far, which I think is still fairly common. I guess it's not out of the ordinary, but something to keep in mind how young a lot of people we're talking about are mm-hmm. when they have these experiences. Right. Late teens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's in his late teens. He's run away from the place he spent the most of his time from his family he ends up being reunited with his mother in so now i say johannesburg in mm-hmm. south africa i don't know how we how we're pronouncing the j here couldn't tell you but he reunites with his mother who sent him to live with his grandparents like for safety but they end mm-hmm. up kind of finding each other once again at this point he's angsty as most of us are but all that all of that all of the regular teenage stuff is coupled <laughs> with the trauma racism say, oppression of, yeah like, he has a lot all of this stuff yeah yeah yeah, yeah. this is isn't just, just like, like your like, average teenage angst right he's just like dealing with so many things mm-hmm. and with that again he's like i want to do something with mm-hmm. this or i just want to do something more so he specifically wanted to get involved in work related to ending apartheid Mm -hmm. in school he joined political organizations focused on labor rights affordable housing and general social justice which the labor rights and affordable housing were all kind of tied in with apartheid and he also began exploring his budding sexual identity so he kind Mm -hmm. of had a more stable potentially we'll say like as stable as he's had so far living environment and so Mm -hmm. there was space to kind of explore this sexual identity sure so so tell me what is what what does it look like in terms of government and regulations to be queer at this time do you know what a great question so i i don't know i I was just i was just about to kind of talk about the social implications Mm -hmm. of his sexuality when he came out I will say, and I talk about this later, he was out pretty publicly and faced, you know, imprisonment for other things. And we talk about that. But 
at that time he was out openly and Mm -hmm. didn't seem like the persecution and oppression he was facing was based specifically on that. Although this story is not hard to pick apart because you don't want to pick it apart. Like it all is important to recognize together, but his, yeah, his race and his queerness are both very important Mm -hmm. in like why he faced the things that he did. Yeah. And so because it was during apartheid, it's hard to kind of separate what sure he was being like charged with being illegal for because like at okay. that time just like existing also as a black person was illegal. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. But I do now kind of talk a little bit about like the social implications and so okay. maybe that will explore it a little bit more and then talk about the legal stuff like fast forward ahead into the 90s all right let's talk about it but yeah we can i'll have to look that up okay so simon going back a little bit was isolated for a lot of his early life like i was saying due to the nature of life for black africans during apartheid so as we're talking about now that things are a little bit more stable for him he begins looking for companionship and he begins exchanging letters with a pen pal named roy shepherd So Simon is now age 19. Mm -hmm. Him and Roy become romantically involved and eventually become lifelong partners. So really just like first try. How did they become pen pals? Through what? Um, I I assume it wasn't like a school project. Like, hi, my name is Jared and I live in this town and my class is big. (laughs) What is your class like? I kind of understood it as almost like a... I want to say dating app, but it was also more for like oh. exchanging friendships. Like it was an intentional sort okay. of pen pal program. So you like get involved okay. and get like assigned a pen pal and things like okay. that. Pre so tech is. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was like before people were able to communicate very quickly and like right. in an accessible way. So, mm-hmm. so I guess it was like really lucky that he found someone that also was exploring sexuality and yeah and yeah That's quite because luck. it wasn't like a grinder situation where you're like oh pretty confident most people here are right. probably looking for the same thing right. i think you know it could have just been a, i believe it started as a french like it could have just been like any person looking yeah, yeah, for yeah. anything right. and did just happen to turn into literally mm-hmm. like a mm-hmm. lifelong relationship right and is now now is roy his name's Roy. Hey, Roy, yes. Is Roy white? Yeah, we we get okay, into sorry. that. So okay. yes. Great. Okay. So so yes, Roy is white. And at this point, Simon knows Roy is white, and Roy knows that Simon is black. And they're great. Like it never really affected their relationship between the two of them. They still right. felt the same love for one another, but their families were mm-hmm. impacted by this, but for different reasons, which is kind of where we begin to see more of the intersections Mm -hmm. within Simon's life. So after coming out to his family, Simon was forced to seek counseling and treatments by various doctors, spiritualists, and psychiatrists in an attempt to fix his gayness, which we still see today Mm -hmm. and is gross. Don't do that. Mm -hmm. Roy comes out to his family and told them about his relationship with Simon. And now Roy's family was horrified and refused to see their son with a black man. Not as impactful that he was gay, gay. more impactful that he was in a relationship with a black man. Uh, so it was kind of like 
Simon's family was like, you can't be gay. And Um, Roy's family was like, you can't date a black man. mm -hmm. So again, and like, we kind of see this a little bit in Stormy's story as well of like, because there are various pieces of your identity, there Mm -hmm. were various ways in which you could face discrimination or non-acceptance. Right. So, and this is just, again, a little trigger warning for suicidality and, and mentions of suicide here. So the two men, after coming out to their families and knowing that they kind of disapproved, wrote to one another about a suicide pact essentially saying that if their families prevented them from being together, they would instead choose to die by suicide than live life apart, which Mm. like, I get it, but Mm -hmm. like a Romeo and Juliet plan, like we're past that stuff. Like it's not, it's not the way to go. So I get it. It's like when you're so madly in love, like, especially with someone that is from a completely different world than you, it's Mm -hmm. everything feels heightened and magnified. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get where their brains are at. I don't, agree with the decision but i totally get where they're coming from it's hard yeah and like there probably was no kind of light at the end of the tunnel seemingly of like oh we can just be accepted by other people so they kind of had this feeling of like because of all the things we've each potentially faced in our lives we don't see this being any different so i'd rather just like be with you Mm -hmm. in eternity than live this oh my god okay but which is like, again, understandable, sort of, but, like, very dramatic. And yeah. it's not as romantic as you kids may think it is. Yeah, please don't do that. But Simon's mother, so who, again, just to recap, Simon's family didn't approve of him being gay. But she mm-hmm. finds this letter and decides, hmm, maybe I don't want my son to feel this way or do this. Maybe I would rather my son alive and gay than than dead. Right. Wild. Uh, very insane to me that she needed to like have that concrete Mm -hmm. evidence that that could Mm -hmm. be a possibility without like accepting that conclusion herself. But either way she relented, but like just enough. She wasn't like Mm -hmm. peachy keen about all of this, but she wasn't joining P flag. Yeah, no. So she like relented a little bit about Simon's sexuality. Also. So they have like sort of their parents' blessing at this point. Also then one of the therapists that Simon had saw at the time that his mom was trying to like convert him somehow Mm -hmm. was actually a gay man himself. He though was like not out publicly. Oh. And he advised that Roy and Simon live together because then they were also like, well, where are we supposed to go? Because we can't really be together. Mm-hmm. But their story to the public would be that Simon was employed by Roy as a domestic servant, which kind of mm-hmm. kinky. And that way they could live together. Yuck. Kind of kinky in like a bad way. Yeah, in because a bad of, way. Because that because wasn't really context. what was going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, like that was not really what was going on. So like It wasn't that like a made fantasy. Just... It was like, hey, no. you're his. It was like race. It was racism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was like, Let's this is a believable that. story because people are being kept in other people's homes. So like right, that's right, right. realistic. Sure. Oh, yeah. So I guess it sort of worked out like mm-hmm. mediocre ever after for the two men. Like it was mm-hmm. fine. Which So they did have each other forever, which is cute but it is a lot cuter if you're just able to be accepted by your friends and family and like general society so like 
they're able to be together though is okay. the main point here. Okay. So after all of this mm-hmm. happens in kind of a short time. Okay. Around the same time in 1980, Simon joined both the Congress of South Africa Students and the Gay and Lesbian Association. Wow. So okay. yeah, he's very involved. He's like very like school spirit, woohoo mm-hmm. person. Okay. So he held a leadership position with the Congress of South African Students, which was a political organization meant to unify students around present social justice issues, specifically things about apartheid. Mm-hmm. But he felt it was disingenuous to this cause of freedom and liberation to continue also keeping his sexuality a secret. And he felt Mm -hmm. he could come out to this group of activists because it's not that different to be fighting for freedom in one case Mm -hmm. and then also another. So some of them were supportive, but many of them held hearings and discussions to decide if Simon could keep his leadership positions within the organization. Ultimately, he was able to remain in his position with the group, but obviously was impacted by the experience and felt ostracized by people he thought were alongside of him in this fight for equality. He's like, we're fighting for the same things. I just also want to protect these other civil liberties that I am entitled to. Right. So similarly, the Gay and Lesbian Association of South Africa was, of course, accepting of his sexuality, but refused to be involved with political causes and like take a stance on political issues, Mm -hmm. mainly because group membership was predominantly white. And of course, white people were not impacted or benefited from the apartheid state. So he wasn't able to feel fully accepted into either group and his identity was constantly compartmentalized based on his associations to each group. So Mm -hmm. one group, he was able to fight for his political causes as a black person and just a person who believed in ending apartheid and then Mm -hmm. in another way, but he wasn't able to embrace his sexuality with them. And then in another group, he was able to fully be embraced and accepted for his sexuality, but then they wouldn't advocate for political causes. So it's like he couldn't have both. Right. It's like choose which identity means more to you and then fight for that cause, which is not something you can ask right. for a human to do. I mean, everybody is exactly. like all of these different factors, all of these different things. It's if you're fighting for one cause, like you're saying, it's kind of you're fighting for other causes. Exactly. So while in a protest with other anti-apartheid, so political activists, at a rally for low rent and affordable housing, police arrived and attempted to end the protest with tear gas before just open firing into the crowd. About 20 people were killed, and at their funerals, police arrived again because many of the remaining protesters attended the funerals Mm -hmm. of those who had fallen during the original protest. Mm -hmm. And it was here that Simon was arrested alongside 21 other protesters and became part of one of the longest trials in South African history entitled the Delmas Treason Trial. So Simon was originally detained for nearly two years before even seeing the inside of a courtroom and being like allowed to have bail. And when he did, he realized him and the other people arrested with him, the other 21 men, were facing the death penalty if convicted because they're, they were accused of treason. Uh, wait, that feel, that is so... Disproportionate? Yeah, what? That yeah. does not feel like that's how that should work. 
Well, you know, South Africa this time, nothing was probably how it should work. Jesus. I mean. Yeah. And this really sums it up a lot yeah. that like at this point, the evidence that I have of what was like really genuinely trying to paint a picture of like what could have been going on seemed uh-huh. like it was a pretty standard protest. There was, right. you know, fighting with police when they arrived, which is when there was tear gas and, and open firing and things like that. Yeah, yeah. But treason, first of all, does not seem the appropriate. Punishable by death. Yeah. And again, the, then the like punishment being death does also just doesn't sit well with me. <laughs> no, me neither. But anyway, now he's awaiting trial and again decides to share with the other prisoners that he's on trial with. So there's 22 of them in total facing these same charges. So he shares with them because it's like, what do we got to lose at this point? And because it's important to him that he was gay and they immediately wanted to have the charges against all of them separated so that he was just facing charges on his own, like to go through his own trial separate from the 21 of them because they were worried if his sexuality was like exposed more openly that they would face more consequences and just general scrutiny because of his sexuality. How disgusting is that? I, again, I understand the need for self-preservation. I get the motive behind everything, but how absolutely disgusting. Yeah, really, really gross. And, you know, like, in all of this too, like, we don't, I think we don't talk about it often enough, and and some folks do, but I feel like people who need to see it miss it, of how incredibly vulnerable it is Mm -hmm. that we force queer people to come out, because, like, that's not something that people always have to think about. Like, if you do not have a piece of you that's, like, out of the main, like out of the Mm -hmm. ordinary, we'll say, you do not have to tell people that because it's assumed, like that's the baseline. And so we do not emphasize enough the like bravery that especially at this time, this took to repeatedly share with people, people that you may not be that close with, this piece of yourself. And people that you were fighting the same cause for. right so the people right. that you have very clear similar interests with and are fighting together with each other to then right. all have all every single one of them turn their back on you because of one thing that changes nothing about nothing. you know what you were doing right no disgusting and he this happened repeat like this was the repeated response that he had right so like so never once up. was someone just like cool thanks for trusting i me. got like, you yeah right but eventually, because they had quite a number of days sitting in prison, they did recognize that freedom and equality for Black Africans went hand in hand with freedom and equality for LGBTQI+, which is the South African acronym, acronym that they use with I being intersex. Mm-hmm. Just that, that they all went together, that this liberatory movement meant liberation for all people. And so after, so they they kind of let that go. And after 240 days of waiting for this trial, all 22 people were acquitted and released. Okay, so you're telling me 
that they are arrested. They sit in jail for two years. Mm-hmm. Then they go to the courtroom. And then, then they, they say, have a trial. now you have to wait almost a whole year before we're yeah. even going to tell you if you're convicted and get killed or we're yeah. going to let you go. Correct. All in okay. all, I think the, the like detainment and mm-hmm. all of this was a, lasted about four years. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Mm-mm. So two years after his release, Simon founded an intentionally inclusive group that focused on all types of social justice and liberatory issues called GLOW, which was the gay and lesbian organization of the Witwatersrand. The Witwatersrand? This group, headed by Simon and Julia Nichol, was integral in the advancement of equity for LGBTQI plus people in South Africa. By 1990, Glow and Beverly Dietze started the first South African Gay Pride March in Johannesburg. And at the same time, Simon was also pushing forward education and support regarding HIV and AIDS. He helped to ensure more equitable access to HIV and AIDS treatments and education around safer sex practices. Simon himself lived with HIV for 12 years, also founding the Positive African Men Group because he was one of the first Black gay men in the public eye to be open about his HIV status. He passed away from HIV-related illnesses in 1998. Before this, though, Simon witnessed and was instrumental in the end of apartheid, the advancement of inclusive education, support, social groups, and general equality for South African LGBTQI plus people, and with other queer activists met Nelson Mandela earlier in his life before his death. Simon has had lasting impacts on Black and queer movements in South Africa, and many young activists still learn about and are influenced by his activism. His letters with Roy from prison are archived and many dedications are made to both men. Before there was a word to describe his experience, Simon felt multiple systems of oppression and decided with that to create more inclusive spaces. And we recognize that oftentimes in academia as intersectionality, and I'm sure we've talked about it more on this podcast too, but that concept, that experience existed far before there was a definition for it. And so Simon was really focused on making sure that there was systems in place to support that. So I just want to end on that same note. And it really is a positive one that Simon wanted to create spaces where everyone felt included. And he says this, Quote, if you are black and gay in South Africa, then it really is all the same closet. Inside is darkness and oppression. Outside is freedom, unquote. And he wanted to create that freedom for as many people as possible. And we still, still see that happening today. And that is largely thanks to the work that he did for a lot of different communities. So yeah, that's Simon. What an amazing story. I can't believe, kind of like Stormy, that I didn't know about Simon at all. And kind of like you were saying, it is difficult because a lot of people don't know about people in their own country, you know, Mm -hmm. rather than people in other countries. But he is so monumental in, Mm -hmm. in a lot of movements that affected so many places in the world, not just South Africa. Like he definitely helped the country lead by example. And hopefully his work is continuing to lead by example. Mm -hmm. I do want to say that one love the letters I love that letters are a constant 
theme that come up in our stories and I want to read them and I'm obsessed with it. (laughs) And also I'm glad that even though it took so many years and it took, you know, after being in jail and going through all these horrible things, I'm glad that he was still able to converge the, the fights that he was fighting and was able Mm -hmm. to fight for racism and homophobia and all of these other causes that fall under what made Simon Simon. Mm -hmm. And he was able to do it without, you know, hopefully widespread persecution and hate and disregard for who he was as an activist and as a person. Absolutely. And he paved the way for a lot of that progress. And I don't think I mentioned it earlier, but South Africa was actually the first country to like enshrine protections for queer people within their constitution. They were the first country to do that. Simon saw that happen in the time he was alive. And so like you were saying, he was forced to in a lot of ways, but did really create spaces where the work can continue to be done, but where Mm -hmm. people feel really welcomed. Like in his organizations, they had a lot of specifically black leadership and and Mm -hmm. that was intentional because people it was important that there existed groups and and advocacy and education and activism that was Mm -hmm. like culturally aware that was specific to the way many people can experience the world like there's a different everyone has a different experience and and so it's important that you know when you're creating activist circles and groups and collectives that you're taking into account all those experiences and he was like yeah i need to do that and so he did very successfully oh my god everybody outside of south africa especially the u.s and the u.s government let's start taking some notes from simon please and yeah let's fucking get it together let's be more (laughs) like simon let's get it together let's literally play one big game of simon says and we will pass on his letters Mm. to the government (laughs) please and thank you amazing Thanks for tuning in to episode 19 of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about some pretty monumental Black activists. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes even being a bodyguard for the mob a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. To see photos from this week's episode, please make sure to check out our Instagram at historicallyreally, and make sure to send us your personal stories at historicallyreallygoodfriends at gmail.com. We hope to see you again next week. Goodbye! Goodbye.